I warn them that they must not talk of separation from the world if they can lend their sanction to amusements which are invariably connected with gambling, betting, drunkenness, and fornication. These are the things which God will judge. The end of these things is death. Hebrews 13.4, Romans 6.21 Hard words these, no doubt, but are they not true? It may seem to your relatives and friends very straight-laced, strict and narrow, if you tell them you cannot go to the races or the theatre with them. But we must fall back on first principles. Is the world a danger to the soul, or is it not? Are we to come out from the world, or are we not? These are questions which can only be answered in one way. If we love our souls, we must have nothing to do with amusements which are bound up with sin. Nothing short of this can be called genuine scriptural separation from the world. E. He that desires to come out from the world and be separate must be moderate in the use of lawful and innocent recreations. No sensible Christian will ever think of condemning all recreations. In a world of wear and tear like that we live in, occasional unbending and relaxation are good for all, body and mind alike require seasons of lighter occupation and opportunities of letting off high spirits, and especially when they are young. Exercise itself is a positive necessity for the preservation of mental and bodily health. I see no harm in cricket, rowing, running, and other manly athletic recreations. I find no fault with those who play at chess and such like games of skill. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made. No wonder the poet says, strange that a harp of thousand strings should keep in tune so long. Anything which strengthens nerves and brain and digestion and lungs and muscles and makes us more fit for Christ's work so long as it is not in itself sinful, is a blessing and ought to be thankfully used. Anything which will occasionally divert our thoughts from their usual grinding channel in a healthy manner is a good and not an evil. But it is the excess of these innocent things which a true Christian must watch against if he wants to be separate from the world. He must not devote his whole heart and soul and mind and strength and time to them, as many do, if he wishes to serve Christ. There are hundreds of lawful things which are good in moderation, but bad when taken in excess. Healthful medicine in small quantities, downright poison when swallowed down in huge doses. In nothing is this so true as it is 
in the matter of recreations. The use of them is one thing, and the abuse of them is another. The Christian who uses them must know when to stop and how to say, Hold, enough! Do they interfere with his private religion? Do they take up too much of his thoughts and attention? Have they a secularizing effect on his soul? Have they a tendency to pull him down to earth? Then let him hold hard and take care. All this will require courage, self-denial, and firmness. It is a line of conduct which will often bring on us the ridicule and contempt of those who know not what moderation is and who spend their lives in making trifles serious things and serious things trifles. But if we mean to come out from the world, we must not mind this. We must be temperate, even in lawful things, whatever others may think of us. This is genuine scriptural separation. Last but not least, he that desires to come out from the world and be separate must be careful how he allows himself in friendships, intimacies, and close relationships with worldly people. We cannot help meeting many unconverted people as long as we live. We cannot avoid having intercourse with them and doing business with them unless we go out of the world. 1 Corinthians 5.10 To treat them with the utmost courtesy, kindness, and charity whenever we do meet them is a positive duty. But acquaintance is one thing, and intimate friendship is quite another. To seek their society without cause, to choose their company, to cultivate intimacy with them is very dangerous to the soul. Human nature is so constituted that we cannot be much with other people without effect on our own character. The old proverb will never fail to prove true. Tell me with whom a man chooses to live, and I will tell you what he is. The scripture says expressly, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs 13, verse 20. If then a Christian who desires to live consistently chooses for his friends those who either do not care for their souls or the Bible or God or Christ or holiness or regard them as of secondary importance, it seems to me impossible for him to prosper in his religion. He will soon find that Their ways are not his ways, nor their thoughts his thoughts, nor their tastes his tastes, and that unless they change, he must give up intimacy with them. In short, there must be separation. Of course, such separation will be painful. But if we have to choose between the loss of a friend and the injury of our souls, there ought to be no doubt in our minds If friends will not walk in the narrow way with us, we must not walk in the broad way to please them. But let us distinctly understand 
that to attempt to keep up close intimacy between a converted and an unconverted person, if both are consistent with their natures, is to attempt an impossibility. The principle here laid down ought to be carefully remembered by all unmarried Christians in the choice of a husband or wife. I fear it is too often entirely forgotten. Too many seem to think of everything except religion in choosing a partner for life, or to suppose that it will come somehow as a matter of course. Yet, when a praying, Bible-reading, God-fearing, Christ-loving, Sabbath-keeping Christian marries a person who takes no interest whatever in serious religion, what can the result be but injury to the Christian or immense unhappiness? Health is not infectious, but disease is. As a general rule, in such cases, the good go down to the level of the bad, and the bad do not come up to the level of the good. The subject is a delicate one, and I do not care to dwell upon it. But this I say confidently to every unmarried Christian man or woman. If you love your soul, if you do not want to fall away and backslide, if you do not want to destroy your own peace and comfort for life, resolve never to marry any person who is not a thorough Christian, whatever the resolution may cost you. You had better die than marry an unbeliever. Stand to this resolution and let no one ever persuade you out of it. Depart from this resolution and you will find it almost impossible to come out and be separate. You will find you have tied a millstone round your own neck in running the race towards heaven. And if saved at last, it will be so as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3.15 I offer these six general hints to all who wish to follow St. Paul's advice and to come out from the world and be separate. In giving them, I lay no claim to infallibility, but I believe they deserve consideration and attention. I do not forget that the subject is full of difficulties and that scores of doubtful cases are continually arising in a Christian's course, in which it is very hard to say what is the path of duty and how to behave. Perhaps the following bits of advice may be found useful. In all doubtful cases, we should first pray for wisdom and sound judgment. If prayer is worth anything, it must be specially valuable when we desire to do right but do not see our way. In all doubtful cases, let us often try ourselves by recollecting the eye of God. Should I go to such and such a place or do such and such a thing if I really thought God was looking at me? In all doubtful cases, let us never forget the second advent of Christ and the day of judgment. Should I like to be found in such and such company or employed in such and such ways? Finally, in all doubtful cases, let us find out what the conduct of the holiest and best Christians 
has been under similar circumstances. If we do not clearly see our own way, we need not be ashamed to follow good examples. I throw out these suggestions for the use of all who are in difficulties about disputable points in the matter of separation from the world. I cannot help thinking that they may help to untie many knots and solve many problems. Four, I shall now conclude the whole subject by trying to show the secrets of real victory over the world. To come out from the world, of course, is not an easy thing. It cannot be easy so long as human nature is what it is, and a busy devil is always near us. It requires a constant struggle and exertion. It entails incessant conflict and self-denial. It often places us in exact opposition to members of our own families, to relations and neighbors. It sometimes obliges us to do things which give great offense and bring on us ridicule and petty persecution. It is precisely this which makes many hang back and shrink from decided religion. They know they are not right. They know that they are not so thorough in Christ's service as they ought to be, and they feel uncomfortable and ill at ease. But the fear of man keeps them back, and so they linger on through life with aching, dissatisfied hearts, with too much religion to be happy in the world, and too much of the world to be happy in their religion. I fear this is a very common case, if the truth were known. Yet, there are some in every age who seem to get the victory over the world. They come out decidedly from its ways and are unmistakably separate. They are independent of its opinions and unshaken by its opposition. They move on like planets in an orbit of their own, and seem to rise equally above the world's smiles and frowns. And what are the secrets of their victory? I will set them down. A. The first secret of victory over the world is a right heart. By that I mean a heart renewed, changed and sanctified by the Holy Ghost, a heart in which Christ dwells, a heart in which old things have passed away and all things become new. The grand mark of such a heart is the bias of its tastes and affections. The owner of such a heart no longer likes the world and the things of the world, and therefore finds it no trial or sacrifice to give them up. He has no longer any appetite for the company, the conversation, the amusements, the occupations, the books, which he once loved, and to come out from them seems natural to him. Great indeed is the expulsive power of a new principle. Just as the new spring buds in a beech hedge push off the old leaves and make them quietly fall to the ground, so does the new heart of a believer invariably affect his tastes and likings and make him drop many things which he once loved and lived in because he now likes them no more. 
Let him that wants to come out from the world and be separate make sure first and foremost that he has got a new heart. If the heart is really right, everything else will be right in time. If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Matthew 6.22 If the affections are not right, there never will be right action. B. The second secret of victory over the world is a lively, practical faith in unseen things. What saith the Scripture? This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. First John 5, 4 To attain and keep up the habit of looking steadily at invisible things as if they were visible. To set before our minds every day as grand realities, our souls, God, Christ, heaven, hell, judgment, eternity. To cherish an abiding conviction that what we do not see is just as real as what we do see and ten thousand times more important. This, this is one way to be conquerors over the world. This was the faith which made the noble army of saints described in the eleventh chapter of Hebrews obtain such a glorious testimony from the Holy Ghost. They all acted under a firm persuasion that they had a real God, a real Savior, and a real home in heaven, though unseen by mortal eyes. Armed with this faith, a man regards this world as a shadow compared to the world to come and cares little for its praise or blame, its enmity or its rewards. Let him that wants to come out from the world and be separate, but shrinks and hangs back for fear of the things seen, pray and strive to have this faith. All things are possible to him that believes. Mark 9.23 Like Moses, he will find it possible to forsake Egypt, seeing him that is invisible. Like Moses, he will not care what he loses or who is displeased, because he sees afar off, like one looking through a telescope, a substantial recompense of reward. Hebrews 11.26 See, the third and last secret of victory over the world is to attain and cultivate the habit of boldly confessing Christ on all proper occasions. In saying this, I would not be mistaken. I want no one to blow a trumpet before him and thrust his religion on others at all seasons. But I do wish to encourage all who strive to come out from the world to show their colors and to act and speak out like men who are not ashamed to serve Christ. A steady, quiet assertion of our own principles as Christians and habitual readiness to let the children of the world see that we are guided by other rules than they are and do not mean to swerve from them. A calm, firm, courteous, maintenance of our own standard of things in 
every company. All this will insensibly form a habit within us and make it comparatively easy to be a separate man. It will be hard at first, no doubt, and cost us many a struggle. But the longer we go on, the easier will it be. Repeated acts of confessing Christ will produce habits. Habits once formed will produce a settled character. Our characters once known, we shall be saved much trouble. Men will know what to expect from us and will count it no strange thing if they see us living the lives of separate, peculiar people. He that grasps the nettle most firmly will always be less hurt than the man who touches it with a trembling hand. It is a great thing to be able to say no decidedly, but courteously when asked to do anything which conscience says is wrong. He that shows his colors boldly from the first and is never ashamed to let men see whose he is and whom he serves will soon find that he has overcome the world and will be let alone. Bold confession is a long step towards victory. It only remains for me now to conclude the whole subject with a few short words of application. The danger of the world ruining the soul, the nature of true separation from the world, the secrets of victory over the world are all before the reader of this paper. I now ask him to give me his attention for the last time while I try to say something directly for his personal benefit. One, my first word shall be a question. Are you overcoming the world, or are you overcome by it? Do you know what it is to come out from the world and be separate, or are you yet entangled by it and conformed to it? If you have any desire to be saved, I entreat you to answer this question. If you know nothing of separation, I warn you affectionately that your soul is in great danger. The world passeth away, and they who cling to the world and think only of the world will pass away with it to everlasting ruin. Awake to know your peril before it be too late. Awake and flee from the wrath to come. The time is short. The end of all things is at hand. The shadows are lengthening. The sun is going down. The night cometh when no man can work. The great white throne will soon be set. The judgment will begin. The books will be opened. Awake and come out from the world while it is called today. Yet a little while and there will be no more worldly occupations and worldly amusements, no more getting money and spending money, no more eating and drinking and feasting and dressing and ball-going and theaters and races and cards and gambling. What will you do when all these things have passed away forever? How can you possibly be happy in an eternal heaven where holiness is all in all, and worldliness has no place. Oh, consider these things and be wise. 
awake and break the chains which the world has thrown around you. Awake and flee from the wrath to come. Two, my second word shall be a counsel. If you want to come out from the world, but know not what to do, take the advice which I give you this day. Begin by applying direct as a penitent sinner to our Lord Jesus Christ, and put your case in His hands. Pour out your heart before Him. Tell Him your whole story, and keep nothing back. Tell Him that you are a sinner wanting to be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and entreat Him to save you. That blessed Savior gave Himself for us that He might deliver us from this present evil world. Galatians 1 verse 2 He knows what the world is, for He lived in it thirty and three years. He knows what the difficulties of a man are, for He was made man for our sakes and dwelt among men. High in heaven, at the right hand of God, He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by Him, able to keep us from the evil of the world while we are still living in it, able to give us power to become the sons of God, able to keep us from falling, able to make us more than conquerors. Once more I say, go direct to Christ with the prayer of faith and put yourself wholly and unreservedly in His hands. Hard as it may seem to you now to come out from the world and be separate, you shall find that with Jesus nothing is impossible. You, even you, shall overcome the world. 3. My third and last word shall be encouragement. If you have learned by experience what it is to come out from the world, I can only say to you, take comfort and persevere. You are in the right road. You have no cause to be afraid. The everlasting hills are in sight. Your salvation is nearer than when you believed. Take comfort and press on. No doubt you have had many a battle and made many a false step. You have sometimes felt ready to faint and been half disposed to go back to Egypt, but your master has never entirely left you, and he will never suffer you to be tempted above that you are able to bear. Then persevere steadily in your separation from the world, and never be ashamed of standing alone. Settle it firmly in your mind that the most decided Christians are always the happiest, and remember that no one ever said at the end of his course that he had been too holy and lived too near to God. Here, last of all, what is written in the Scriptures of truth. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Luke 12, 8. There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the Gospels. 
But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters, and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. Mark 10, 29 and 30. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Hebrews 10, verses 35 to 37. Those words were written and spoken for our sakes. Let us lay hold on them and never forget them. Let us persevere to the end and never be ashamed of coming out from the world and being separate. We may be sure it brings its own reward. Note, if you will, thoughtful and intelligent readers will probably observe that under the head of worldly amusements, I have said nothing about ball-going and card-playing. They are delicate and difficult subjects, and many classes of society are not touched by them. But I am quite willing to give my opinion, and the more so because I do not speak of them without experience in the days of my youth. A. Concerning ball-going, I only ask Christians to judge the amusement by its tendencies and accompaniments. To say there is anything morally wrong in the mere bodily act of dancing would be absurd. David danced before the ark. Solomon said, There is a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3.4 Just as it is natural to lambs and kittens to frisk about, so it seems natural to young people all over the world to jump about to a lively tune of music. If dancing were taken up for mere exercise, if dancing took place at early hours and men only danced with men and women with women, it would be needless and absurd to object to it. But everybody knows that this is not what is meant by modern ball-going. This is an amusement which involves very late hours, extravagant dressing, and an immense amount of frivolity, vanity, jealousy, unhealthy excitement, and vain conversation. Who would like to be found in a modern ballroom when the Lord Jesus Christ comes the second time? Who that has taken much part in balls as I myself once did before I knew better? can deny that they have a most dissipating effect on the mind, like opium-eating and dram-drinking on the body. I cannot withhold my opinion that ball-going is one of those worldly amusements which war against the soul, and which it is wisest and best to give up. And as for those parents who urge their sons and daughters against their wills and inclinations to go to balls, I can only say that they are taking on themselves the most dangerous responsibility and risking great injury to their children's souls. B. Concerning card playing, my judgment is much the same. I ask Christian people 
to try it by its tendencies and consequences. Of course, it would be nonsense to say there is positive wickedness in an innocent game of cards for diversion and not for money. I have known instances of old people of lethargic and infirm habit of body, unable to work or read, to whom cards in the evening were really useful to keep them from drowsiness and preserve their health. But it is vain to shut our eyes to facts. If masters and mistresses once begin to play cards in the parlor, servants are likely to play cards in the kitchen, and then comes in a whole train of evils. Moreover, from simple card-playing to desperate gambling, there is but a chain of steps. If parents teach young people that there is no harm in the first step, they must never be surprised if they go on to the last. I give this opinion with much diffidence. I lay no claim to infallibility. Let everyone be persuaded in his own mind. But considering all things, it is my deliberate judgment that the Christian who wishes to keep his soul right and to come out from the world will do wisely to have nothing to do with card play. It is a habit which seems to grow on some people so much that it becomes at last a necessity, and they cannot live without it. Madam, said Romaine to an old lady at Bath, who declared she could not do without her cards, Madam, if this is the case, cards are your God, and your God is a very poor one. Surely, in doubtful matters like these, it is well to give our souls the benefit of the doubt and to refrain. See, concerning field sports, I admit that it is not easy to lay down a strict rule. I cannot go the length of some and say that galloping across country or shooting grouse, partridges, or pheasants or catching salmon or trout are in themselves positively sinful occupations and distinct marks of an unconverted heart. There are many persons, I know, to whom violent outdoor exercise and complete diversion of mind are absolute necessities for the preservation of their bodily and mental health. But in all these matters the chief question is one of degree. Much depends on the company men are thrown into and the extent to which the thing is carried. The great danger lies in excess. It is possible to be intemperate about hunting and shooting as well as about drinking. We are commanded in Scripture to be temperate in all things if we would so run as to obtain, and those who are addicted to few sports should not forget this rule. The question, however, is one about which Christians must be careful in expressing an opinion and moderate in their judgments. The man who can neither ride nor shoot nor throw a fly is hardly qualified to speak dispassionately about such matters. It is cheap and easy work to condemn others for doing things which you cannot do yourself and are utterly unable to enjoy. One thing only is perfectly certain. 
All intemperance or excess is sin. The man who is wholly absorbed in few sports and spends all his years in such a manner that he seems to think God only created him to be a hunting, shooting, and fishing animal, is a man who at present knows very little of scriptural Christianity. It is written, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, verse 21. Chapter 13 Riches and Poverty There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Luke 16, verses 19 to 23. There are probably... Few readers of the Bible who are not familiar with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It is one of those passages of Scripture which leave an indelible impression on the mind. Like the parable of the prodigal son once read, it is never forgotten. The reason of this is clear and simple. The whole parable is a most vividly painted picture. The story as it goes on carries our senses with it with irresistible power. Instead of readers, we become lookers-on. We are witnesses of all the events described. We see. We hear. We fancy we could almost touch. The rich man's banquet, the purple, the fine linen, the gate, the beggar lying by it, the sores, the dogs, the crumbs, the two deaths. The rich man's burial, the ministering angels, the bosom of Abraham, the rich man's fearful waking up, the fire, the gulf, the hopeless remorse, all all stand out before our eyes in bold relief and stamp themselves upon our minds. This is the perfection of language. This is the attainment of the famous Arabian standard of eloquence. He speaks the best who turns the ear into an eye. But after all, it is one thing to admire the masterly composition of this parable and quite another to receive the spiritual lessons it contains. The eye of the intellect can often see beauties while the heart remains asleep and sees nothing at all. Hundreds Read Pilgrim's Progress with deep interest, to whom the struggle for the celestial city is foolishness. Thousands are familiar with every word of the parable before us this day, who never consider how it comes home to their own case. Their conscience is deaf 
to the cry which ought to ring in their ears as they read, Thou art a man. Their heart never turns to God with a solemn inquiry, Lord, is this my picture? Lord, is it I? I invite my readers this day to consider the leading truths which this parable is meant to teach us. I purposely omit to notice any part of it but that which stands at the head of this paper. May the Holy Ghost give us a teachable spirit and an understanding heart and so produce lasting impressions on our souls. 1. Let us observe first of all how different are the conditions which God allots to different men. The Lord Jesus begins his parable by telling us of a rich man and a beggar. He says not a word in praise either of poverty or of riches. He describes the circumstances of a wealthy man and the circumstances of a poor man, but he neither condemns the temporal position of one nor praises that of the other. The contrast between the two men is painfully striking. Look on this picture and on that. Here is one who possessed abundance of this world's good things. He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Here is another who has literally nothing. He is a friendless, diseased, half-starved pauper. He lies at the rich man's gate full of sores and begs for crumbs. Both are children of Adam. Both came from the same dust and belonged to one family. Both are living in the same land and subjects of the same government. And yet, how different is their condition. But we must take heed that we do not draw lessons from the parable which it was never meant to teach. The rich are not always bad men and do not always go to hell. The poor are not always good men and do not always go to heaven. We must not rush into the extreme of supposing that it is sinful to be rich. We must not run away with the idea that there is anything wicked in the difference of condition here described and that God intended all men to be equal. There is nothing in our Lord Jesus Christ's words to warrant any such conclusion. He simply describes things as they are often seen in the world and as we must expect to see them. Universal equality is a very high-sounding expression and a favorite idea with visionary men. Many in every age have disturbed society by stirring up the poor against the rich and by preaching up the popular doctrine that all men ought to be equal. But so long as the world is under the present order of things, this universal equality cannot be attained. Those who declaim against the vast inequality of men's lots will doubtless never be in want of hearers. But so long as human nature is what it is, this inequality cannot be prevented.
So long as some are wise and some are foolish, some strong and some weak, some healthy and some diseased, some lazy and some diligent, some provident and some improvident, so long as children reap the fruit of their parents' misconduct, so long as sun and rain and heat and cold and wind and waves and drought and blight and storms and tempests are beyond man's control, so long there always will be some rich and some poor. All the political economy in the world will never make the poor altogether cease out of the land. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. Take all the property in England by force this day and divide it equally among the inhabitants. Give every man above twenty years old an equal portion. Let all take share and share alike and begin the world over again. Do this and see where you would be at the end of fifty years. You would just have come round to the point where you began. You would just find things as unequal as before. Some would have worked and some would have been idle. Some would have been always careless and some always scheming. Some would have sold and others would have bought. Some would have wasted and others would have saved. And the end would be that some would be rich and others poor. Let no man listen to those vain and foolish talkers who say that all men were meant to be equal. They might as well tell you that all men ought to be of the same height, weight, strength, and cleverness, or that all oak trees ought to be of the same shape and size, or that all blades of grass ought to be of the same length. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them whatever the Jews devised. 
there is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.